Hey, Lori. Hey, Ted. How are you? How are you doing? I'm excited. That's how I'm doing. I'm really excited about this. <laughs> Good. This is going to be a blast. Oh, boy. How long is it going to be? Uh, how, hourish, maybe at the most. Okay. 45 okay. minutes. I mean, if we need to cut sooner, we can, we can okay. go wherever you need. Uh, no, I'm pretty open. All right. So what I will do is I'm going to get us started. Welcome to the Vision of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ted McElroy. This podcast is dedicated to helping you find your wins, have a better quality of life, and become the best leader you can be. Hey, have you subscribed to this podcast yet? Don't miss an episode. They're worth every single thing you paid for, which is nothing because they're free. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast by hitting the subscribe button. Give us a rating and a review on your specific podcast player. This helps us with our podcast rankings and makes it easier for people to find us. And as always, please support those who help support us. episode 102 of this podcast, Chris interviewed Justin Kwan, Michelle Andrews, and Richard Ruth. They pointed out that as a profession, we have done a great job of letting our patients know that myopia is not a big deal. If you can see 2020, there is no worry. It is the high myopes that are more danger. And as they said, that message is tragic. Any myopia has a higher risk of maculopathy, glaucoma, and earlier cataract development. In the MySight one-day clinical trials, only 4% of study participants who got ProClear one-days stayed stable in their myopia progression over the three-year period. That means you can confidently say, parent, by not going to a system geared to slow the myopia progression, there is a 96% chance your child's vision will get worse. This may take away some of the choice your child has in the future as to how they will correct their vision. Choice not fear of the disease associations with myopia is what best resonates with parents when it comes to myopia control for their children. And with Cooper Vision's MySight One Day, we now have an FDA-approved single-use contact lens to lessen the progression of myopia in our patients. Contact your Cooper Vision representative to find out more about MySight One Day contact lenses. Hello and welcome to the Vision of Leadership podcast. I'm Ted McElroy, the host for today, and I have as my guest uh, my good friend Lori Sorensen from Texas. Uh, Lori and I serve on an advisory board together, and we've been administrators for Vision Source for quite some time. So I apologize. Yeah, there's probably going to be some sprinkling of Vision Source in this here and there, but just ignore it if you don't really care much about Vision Source. That's not the important part here. It's about really uh, getting a chance to have a good conversation with someone I really admire and enjoy speaking to. So, Lori, uh, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for inviting me. Certainly. So, just in case there's one or two people on the planet who don't know who you are, and I'm sure that's literally how many it is, can you kind of give us your origin story as far as, you know, how you got to where you are today? I know you played uh, basketball in Oklahoma on a basketball scholarship, and, uh, you know, what, what kind of led you into optometry? How did you make those decisions? That kind of thing. Okay. Well, I, you know, I started wearing typical optometrist. I started wearing glasses when I was seven years old. And the second, my second visit to the optometrist, believe it or not, was um, my doctor was Dr. Bobby Christensen. He actually fit me in con, actually not my second visit. It was his partner that I saw first, but in ninth grade, um, Bobby fit me in my first pair of contact lenses. Wow. which obviously helped me a lot when I started playing basketball and when I was playing basketball at that time. So that made a huge difference then. So, yeah. So, and, and I don't know if a lot of people know, but Bobby and his partner, I think his name was Baldwin, um, wrote a book about practice management back in the day. And so, you know, that my experience when I was in his office was superb. Right. And so I thought it was, I loved going to the eye doctor, very different than any other, uh, any other place. And I'm sure I probably had a skewed view of the universe of how good that experience could be because I went to Bobby's practice because it was, it was amazing. Um, so I was always interested in it, I think. So at one point I was going to do marine biology. Um, but early on in high school, I was thinking optometry in college. I, 
um, first started thinking optometry and then I switched to a math major. Uh, my family's all math people. Um, my dad was an engineer. Both of my sisters have math, may have a bachelor's in math. One of them has a master's in math. The other one has a master's in education and working on her PhD right now. Um, so we're definitely from a math family. And, um, but then I decided to switch back to optometry, which that kind of incorporates science and math, obviously, than, uh, than other professions. So I like that. And my mom always told me, you have to go to college and you have to either be, you have to be some kind of doctor or an attorney. And so I believed no her when she told me I had to do something. So I did it. Um, so that's, so that's, so I started going to, I went, I did play basketball for a year in junior college um, on a scholarship. And then I followed my boyfriend at the time to another school and decided not to play basketball anymore. And um, the math teacher who was also the Baptist preacher in uh, at the school I went to at the college I went to um, recommended that I go to the university of Houston college of optometry. So he became my advisor and told me to go there because Oklahoma had just opened up Tahlequah. Right. Um, and he said it wasn't accredited for all four years and he knew Houston was a good school. So he told me to go there. So that's how I ended up there. Um, so then when I graduated from there, I went and did an interview in Austin and just fell in love with the town. So I came to, I got two job offers, one in Dallas for, well, I'll just tell you the monies because um, it, it'll sound weird now, but I got a job offer for $72,000. Um, in Dallas working five days a week. And I got a second one for four days a week in Austin for $36,000. And I took the Austin one because wow. I wanted to, I know I wanted to come to Austin that they had better equipment in their, in their offices. Uh, I just, I could see myself there and I couldn't see myself in up in Dallas. I mean, in that particular um, setting. So that's how I ended up in Austin. And I first worked for these two guys. They sold out to um, lens crafters right after I joined them. So uh, the doctors maintained the doctor's side and the lens crafters took over the optical side. That didn't work real well because they had the entire Southern United States. So about a year later, lens crafters came to me that they basically weren't doing well. And um, I, I took over the, the lens crafters. And um, so I did that until 1995 and then opened my private practice. So for 20 years, I was in one location. I'd expanded five times in that location. And then I built my building five years ago. And so now we're in a 10,500 square foot building. We have seven doctors, including myself. How far away from your original location are you currently? 1.2 miles or something like that. It's right down the street and, and across. So it's uh, two lights and across the street. But the funny thing is we're in a different town. Okay. Because on the south side of the street is Austin, on the north side of the street is Cedar Park. That actually was a huge benefit because now our insurance said Cedar Park. And we ended up with so many more new patients just from the very beginning. And it was the, my staff, we asked why. And on the insurance stuff for it to say Cedar Park actually brought us in new patients. Wow. So, yeah, I had no idea that was going to be a benefit. You know, it's amazing how just these little small incremental changes affect so much of our lives. I mean, I'm not just talking about practice. I'm talking about just our general life as well. Um, it's just kind of weird. I, I had a conversation with somebody a couple of weeks ago about this golf lesson I'm, I took for the first time ever, took golf lessons, and the pro had me move the ball back in my stance like three inches, and it made complete difference in everything I was doing. Three inches was all it took. Wow. Yeah. So, Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. And, and I know there's probably other types of incremental growth things that you probably had happen in your practice. Uh, I mean, what, what's something else that you've had that's been this really small thing that seemingly at the beginning seemed like it was nothing and turned out to be so huge? There's so many, right? And what's, you know, you, you didn't tell me to prepare for that question. <laughs> there are no so, perfections. The, I will tell you the weird thing, and I've talked about this in some of my lectures before, the first thing that ever that pops in my mind, I'm efficiency nut, right? And um, I had a conversation with a front desk person. It was one of my one-on-ones where I was checking in with her and I asked her what she loved about her job and what she didn't like about her job. And she said she didn't like preparing the charts for the next day. And I said, well, what all you're doing? I said, we're, we're paperless, right? So, um, you know, that we have a, you know, routing slip already printed out. It's all, you know, there's not much to do. She goes, well, I have to put the name down. I have to put the appointment time. I have to put which doctor it is. Um, I have to write down which insurance they have. 
don't remember what else it was. And I, she goes, it's just tedious and it's just, I, I hate it. And I said, well, is there something in the, in the software where we can just print that page and the information is there? She said, yeah, the patient page has everything on there plus some other things we would like. I go, well, can you just print that when the patient walks in the door? She said, yeah. I was like, so, you know, I saved about two hours of staff time from this one little tiny conversation. And we've done it that way, you know, for the last nine years. And I was like, duh, why didn't we think of that before? But there's always, it just seems like there's just always something little like that. And I think one of the reasons some practices grow and, and some practices don't grow as much, and I'd say, and this is just one reason, but it's that they're always looking for that little thing. How can we do this just a little faster? How can we do this just a little better? How can we, you know, it's just one thing at a time. And that builds up over the next 20, 30 years. Yeah, one of the other things that happens, it's not just incremental. It's also, I think, and I'm not going to use the right word. Uh, I'd, I'd want to say scarcity, but I think it's almost constraint of having um, to work off of less all of a sudden, like we have this year, for instance. So, you know, what are some of the things that you changed this year for those that are listening in the future? This is 2020. Um, so what is, what are the things that you have done this year because of the constraints we had with COVID that have made huge improvements for what you have in your practice? There's quite a few. That whole concept is there's a book called Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. He's the same um, author that wrote uh, Profit First. And oh, yeah. so it, it's all about, so the to Toilet Paper Entrepreneur is about, you know, you're, you're in the bathroom and there's only like four sheets of paper left. And so how much toilet paper do you use versus when you have a whole roll? And right. so, so it's all about thinking that you only have a few sheets left and that's how you run your business. It's like you're always... Um, striving to just use whatever a small amount instead of realize that the abundance that you have and profit first works that way too. So I thank goodness we were doing profit first before this all started. I will tell you that. And I know Mick Kling has heard that over and over and over, but my goodness, I'm just so grateful for that because we were, we we're, and we're still running. And now, even though we have quite a bit of cash in the office, it doesn't feel that way because we keep it we keep all that cash in different places. So we're still running it pretty lean and mean, but the things that we've changed during COVID that I think I would like to continue for the rest of my life because I think it's amazing is getting the history before the patient walks in the door. Amen. That's huge, right? I mean, it's a pain at, to do it right and to make it happen. I mean, we have the online history, but to get patients to do it, to make sure we get it done, that techs have to call if they didn't do it online, um, all those kinds of things. But, oh my gosh, what a difference once, the, once they're in the practice. We can get them through the system so much faster. And I, that's, that's huge. Um, I'm trying to think. Oh, uh, oh, second biggest thing I would say is our, using our drive-through more efficiently. So not everybody has a drive-through, so this not, might not be helpful for a lot of people. You have a drive-through? I have a drive-through window. Yeah. Uh, oh, I, I. So it was cool before. Now it's like one of the most brilliant moves I've ever made in my life. Um, all of our dispenses, all of our adjustments are done through the drive-through now. We have somebody who is assigned to the, we have two people. We have one that's at the checkout, but we have a, an optician who is assigned to the drive-through. And um, it, that's what they do. They all day long. And we have, shoot, I, what did I figure out the other day? We have close to a thousand a month go through the drive-through. Yeah, it is about a thousand a month. It is about a thousand a month. And um, that's a lot, right? And it yes. definitely justifies having one person back there, but it keeps that thousand people didn't come inside. And right now during COVID, that's huge. But you know what? That's huge when we get back to normal too, yep. because we're big, busy practice. We don't want to be crowded. We don't want it to be too loud. We want it to be efficient inside and not have too many people milling around. So I want to keep doing that when we're done with this. Oh. I would submit okay. to you that it, it's not just, I mean, what it does for us personally in our practices, but I think it's hugely beneficial for the guest because they're not having to get out of the car. Um, you know, let's talk about mom that's, you know, she and the baby are in the car. Now they can just drive up and come to the drive-thru. We, uh, when we built my building in 2002, I put that in because I had heard uh, Dr. Wayne Wood. I don't know if you've ever heard of him before. Mm -hmm. He has a practice in Jacksonville, yes. Florida, and he, he tells himself as being the very first optometric practice that he knows of with a drive-through window. And I heard him talk about this like in 1990, 
seven, I think. And, and when I started looking for a location, when I had decided to actually build a, a property, that was the thing I was going to do, or I was looking for a building that already had a drive-through window. And one of those was a bank that I actually saw. And the guy that I talked to, it just didn't quite work out. He didn't want to sell the practice, sell the building. And I wanted to have my own. So uh, that didn't work out. So I just said, okay, I was going to put one in. And it took forever for my team to really embrace the joy of having this drive-through window. They kind of always looked at it as almost kind of in their way a little bit. And then one day somebody kind of, got some traction with it. And the most exciting thing that happened to me, um, it probably took about, I don't know, it probably took 10 years for us to really get into it was I walked out of, out of the back parking lot and there were three cars backed up to get to their drive through window. I thought we have finally figured this out, you know, yes. and that's, you know, and then it drops off, but now it's been a constant flow through that, through that window. And so ours is a door. Even better. I, especially right now. So for us, cause it can get backed up, obviously. I just said there's a thousand that come through there. So we will send out a, we have a pager system. And so if there, it starts getting backed up, they send a pager and said, help in the drive-through and people will come out there. They'll walk just like Chick-fil-A does. They'll walk down and people will go to the third or the fourth car and go get their glasses. And by the time they get their glasses, everything, usually they're up to the door by then, but we get, everybody just runs and goes and helps and gets the drive-through all caught back up. But I think that's cool. I mean, I think as a patient, they're going to go, wow, I can't believe that. And um, so we had to have some systems because we use, I mean, we never got backed up before. We did maybe 10 a day. Yeah. Now we're doing, you know, 40 or 50 a day. I mean, it's a ton coming through there. And, um, but yeah, I, I saw the drive-through door at Sarah Yoli's practice out in um, Hutto and was something about, she couldn't do a window. They told her she had to do a door and she was disappointed. And I said, no, this is the coolest thing ever. And um, now I'm really grateful we have a door instead of a window, but. Yeah, that'll be a wee bit of a structural change for me to have to go through that it, route. So I'll probably would. not do that one. <laughs> exactly. But you know, uh, the, I had talked about, and you know, when I've done talks about um, business and I care, I have talked about our drive-through window and, and invariably I will get somebody to say, well, you know, I'm in a strip mall or something like that. And we'll say, well, I can't do a drive-through. I said, yeah, you can. You've got one right now. It's called a phone. You just have people call when they get there and you just take it out to their car. Yep. And suddenly now that's what people are doing, you know, and, and you know, I, 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 cool. I, I want to say I was before my time. Unfortunately, I'm like that, that person that invented the first, um, mp3 player i'm no longer in business with that idea apple took it and ran with it you know so i'm i'm in trouble so that's kind of the way that kind of worked out well i tried the online history thing getting patients to do that for years yep. and um we did contests we did all kinds of stuff the highest we ever got was 15 percent of our patients doing it and now it's about i don't even know for sure it's some somewhere around 70 to 80 percent do the online and then we call for the rest of the people but almost 100 percent of our patients have their history done before they walk in the door so what do you think the biggest hang-up was with that when you were at the 15 percent? what was it that was standing in their way to do that so there were several things there were some logistical things our online history doing the form itself wasn't quite as uh friendly as it is now um and i think I think it was partly my leadership. I think that even though I really wanted to do it, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't able to tell the why as well as I should have. And now the why is so important and such a big thing that it's very easy for me to tell them the why um, and the why resonates with them. So I think I didn't get the why in there. And I probably didn't allocate the resources to make sure it happened every day. So right now it's like, this is do or die. We're going to make it happen. And it wasn't do or die before. It was, I think this would be better. And, and so it was really hard to, I couldn't implement it. I tried, I gave up. I tried off and on for three years and I gave up. And so I hadn't even tried again for the last probably five years, maybe six years. And um, so maybe it would have worked better if I tried it again a few years ago, but we're going to definitely keep doing that. It's really refreshing that you said it was part, I think it was a lot of my leadership. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've got a, a mentor of mine who says a lot, what in your leadership caused this result? And he's typically talking about a result that didn't go so well. Yeah, you know, right. so, and that's the question he asked himself. And I, I think I have been really internalizing that question a lot more since I heard him say this a few years ago. 
so where are some other things that you have seen that your leadership has maybe been the cause of some of the lids that you've run into of getting to this next step? I, all of them. (laughs) (laughs) I think every time we, I think that's the only way to look at something that's not working, right? Is to say, to look in the mirror and say, what can I do differently to, to change this or to, or what did I not do? And that's why it didn't happen. I mean, I think that's the only way you can do that as a leader and, 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 or, and, or a manager. And then sometimes it's, you look at it and go, I have done everything I can do to make this successful, which is how I felt about the online history stuff at the time. I'm not sure that was true. Um, and I said, it does, I can't make it happen. I can't make this work. Um, I'm trying to think of something else that we've done. Oh, I don't want to bring it up actually. <laughs> Let's just say we were trying to implement something in our practice and we worked really hard and did everything right. And it just didn't quite work. And um, I said, okay, we, tr- we tried it and um, we gave it two months and it's, we're, it's, it's causing more time on the staff um, than, than it did before. And you guys gave it your two months. You gave it me your all. I feel like you really tried it and we really worked through the whole system. It's not the right thing for us to do. So we're going to stop. So that's one of my big things when I, when I start something new with the staff, you know, you tell them what you're going to do, you tell them why we're going to do it. And then you ask them if they're, if, and the last thing I usually tell them after I ask them if there's any issues that they can see with it and work through that is the last thing I say is we're going to try this for three months. And if it doesn't work, we'll stop. But I need you to, you know, give it your all these three months. Don't just like pretend you're doing it or not try hard. Because um, if it's not working, you show me it's not working, we're going to stop. Most of the time it works, right? If you get everybody on board. Um, but I have definitely tried some things where it did not work. And I said, okay. And some of it's like technology stuff. We were trying to do some kind of technology thing at, at the contact lens area. Um, that looked really cool and it was on iPad and you could show patients all the, the information and the costs and what insurance covered and all that stuff. And it just didn't work in our office because we already had a system that was doing that that was way more efficient. But we did it for three solid months, did it on every single patient. I took out all the way we were doing it before and it just took more time right. and, it, it, and it didn't work as well. And so we quit. So this is not surprising to me, given your background that you said with your family history as with engineering and math and stuff, that experimentation starts playing a role in how you handle your business. And, uh, you know, so is three months a typical length of time for experiments uh, or, you know, how, how do you decide maybe it needs to go longer? Maybe have you ever gotten to a point where you realized, okay, three months is way too long. Oh, yeah. So I say three months to get them in the right mindset. But my mindset is I can pull the plug anytime I feel like I should. Um, And sometimes things have we I wish I could remember a couple of things. But trust me, I have pulled the plug after two weeks, three weeks, um, several times, quite a few times. Um, I did on one project recently and it just it just didn't make sense. Um, and as we started implementing, I started going, I'm just not sure this is going to work inside my head, but I didn't tell them that. <laughs> so I pulled the plug on that one after about three weeks. But like you said, I'm always trying something um, to make things better for the patient and for the staff. And it doesn't always work. How much of that do you think makes it exciting for your team to be doing these new things? And how much of this stuff becomes just, well, it's kind of like the guy who says, you know, limit hold'em poker is hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. So I'm a, I would say 95% of my staff hates change. <laughs> <laughs> and I always tell them that on day one, when I hire them, I know most people don't like change, but you better get used to it here because we're always going to be changing because if you're not changing, you're going backwards. And so we're always trying to improve. So I try to let them know that one of my um, employees has been with me for 30 years now. Wow. And if there is, and she's not my old and she's not my longest one. um, But if there's one person in the universe that hates change more than anyone, it is this woman. And, um, but she actually now it stresses her, don't get me wrong, but she really takes pride in that, that we're always trying to better ourselves. So 
I think with the right communication, if your employees respect you and they trust you and you do a good job of telling them what, why and making sure that you've answered all their questions um, and don't throw too, and that's a huge one, don't throw too many things on them at once. Trying to implement more than one thing at a time is just, you're asking for sheer disaster in my opinion. You know, the, what was the uh, great uh, Ron Swanson said, whole ass one thing, never half ass two things. Right. Um, I really try hard and that's hard for me because I'm wanting to do, you know, 10 things at one time. Um, so I try really hard to do that at work. It's just to the whole ass one thing. Do you have like a punch list of your things that you're going to do? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, okay, I've got, this is, this is priority number one, but hey, in about six months, this is going to be priority number one. I actually have a list in my, it's in my inbox. It's on a piece of paper that is on the bottom of my inbox. So when I completely clean out my inbox, it's my reminder of all these things that I want to do. And sometimes I'll bring that to the forefront and that goes on another piece of paper that's on my desk <laughs> to remind me every single day that that's something I want to get to next. Maybe what we should do also is on the show link notes, I should have you take a picture of your desk and take a picture of my desk and we can Ooh, fight for who's got the messiest desk. <laughs> that's pretty scary. I think it's going to be similar. <laughs> you, you have done such a wonderful job. And actually, this is one of the things that I know most about you is your, your ability to really influence your team and to grow your team and to turn them in to what they want to be. And I mean that in a, in the best way. So what are the things that you do to, to really promote your, your team to where they understand they're truly important to you? I think that is huge because it's, there's so many pieces to that. One is that you really have to get to know each person. And of course, you know, we have 47 people in our office now. <laughs> So it's hard for me to get to know them one-on-one. -on -one. So their managers, their direct managers have to get to know them really well and be able to relay that. And one of the big things is figuring out their strengths, right? Um, what, what did they do the best? And, and I think another thing about looking in the mirror is if somebody is, I, I sent something out on our listserv just recently. Um, if, some, if somebody's not doing well in their job, it's very easy as a manager, owner, operator, whatever, to look at that person and say, they're not doing their job well or they're making mistakes, when in reality, it's, it's our fault that they're not doing well the vast majority of the time, right? They're either not being trained right, which unfortunately was us a lot at the, until right. recently, we're much better now, um, or they're just in the wrong position. Their strengths don't fit into that position. Now, sometimes you'll have somebody who their strengths don't fit into any of your positions in their office, and it's time to tell, let them go on and find their bliss elsewhere, right? And, um, but most of the time, it's because they're in the wrong. I can't tell you how many times we've moved somebody from one position to another, and now they're a superstar, yeah. you know, that they're, they're really good. And, and I think those, I've talked about those one-on-one -on -one meetings and how important they are. I think that's a great place to find strengths. Um, but I also think it's a great way to uh, tell the person um, who might not be obviously the most important person in the office. Let's say it's the person who's pulling the insurance for all the doctors, right? Um, they don't get that feedback. They only actually get feedback when they didn't pull the insurance right. When they didn't get all the information right, they don't get, oh, good job pulling that insurance. You got all the insurance because that's what their job is, right? Um, so telling them how important it is that they got their in, that, that they do that well, and that if they didn't do that well, then the, then the doctor couldn't do their job correctly. The billing person couldn't do their job correctly. The patient would be upset. We wouldn't be doing, giving a wow to all our patients how important every single job in our office is. And you have to communicate that with them and you have to tell them over and over. I'll give you one little thing that I do. Free, I did it to two people today is I have this little, these little notepads and they're funny little notepads that says something like, you're awesome. One of them says, one of them says you rock. And then there's these little boxes that have different things like, you know, you're the team player or you, pick up where everybody else, you know, pick up for everybody else, whatever it has all these, and you mark it. And then on the bottom, there's a place to write a little note. So it'll say like today, um, I forgot which box I wrote for Debbie. And, and at the bottom, I said, I've heard that the opticians think you are a hero out there because you're always out there helping them disinfect the frames and put things up. I appreciate you. And so I usually try to do four or five of those notes every single week 
Mm-hmm. Um, today I did two of them uh, because we also, we did, I told you we did um, 10 um, exams for the Salvation Army men this morning. And uh, one of the front desk people was late. So one of my opticians went up to the front and he just kind of took it all over and got all the guys going where they were supposed to go and did such a great job and basically saved the day. So I you know, wrote a note about him being a hero for the front desk and for the Salvation Army men this morning. So I think that's huge too, right? So that's a little thing that they've done, but it's huge. You know, you have to tell them though. So your one-to-ones, let's go back to that for a second, because I, I'm, I'm interested how you do yours. I, I do them as well. How many of those are you doing a week? Uh, what do you do in your one-to-ones? How do you sort of process that whole thing? Well, it's evolved since the whole COVID stuff. And honestly, some of the books that I've been reading more lately, I realized that we um, need to do, I mean, we were doing where we made sure that each manager hit their team at least once um, in a quarter for a 15, 20 minute one-on-one. And we had a specific question, a lead-in question. It might be, what do you like best and what do you like least about your job? It could be, what do you think is your um, best strength in your job? Um, What would you like to work on? And, and, And let's talk about who we can and we're, what would you like to learn? And let's talk about how we can make that happen. Um, so we would change that once a quarter. But I just read a one of the I just reread another one of uh, the books that I like. Um, and I'm trying to think which book it was. But he said if you can't meet with all the people that as a manager, if you can't meet with each person um, at least once a week and check in with them once a week, then you have too many people. Wow. And yes, he felt very strongly that you need to be checking in with each person once a week. I don't think it needed to be, he wasn't talking about a really long one. The, the main questions, because this was a big business type book, was more about what does your week look like and what do you have plans this week and how can I help you this week? That doesn't really follow us so much, um, but it could be just um, how are things, for me, a lot of times it's how are things going on at home or how, how, are, how did things work last week? Um, but we usually still have some kind of theme. I will tell you right now, the theme that we're working on, on all our one-on-ones and we're, and making sure that we get that question answered, um, is, um, what do you think your strengths are at the office? What do you do well? And then that way we can maybe talk about how we can use that strength a little bit more in their position. So what's been the most surprising answer you've gotten out of that so far? Um, well, I, my one-on-ones are with the doctors. So I just talk to the doctors. And so that's a pretty easy one that they like working with the kids or with the older people and all that. And the, the managers, um, I can't remember one that was super surprising. Um, oh, there is one. Um, whew, this has been a godsend, I will tell you. One of my opticians loves training. Wow. Yeah, wow. <laughs> everybody hates training. And, um, you know, we have this whole training, um, methodology now, so she can do it. Not only does she like doing it, I have given her tools to do it well, excuse me. And, um, so I, I think we're going to, I'm going to create this superstar role for her in the office as a, as the trainer and send her, make her the best optician that ever was, the most knowledgeable, the most educated, so that her, she is a trainer, she can just use, and also teach her how to train better too, take, send her to classes where she can train better also. So I, I found something that she, she says it makes her uh, feel uh, more, I don't know, I forgot the word she used, but fulfilled, that's what she said. She said that it, it feels like it fulfills me. And I think she had been looking for something like that where, where her job was more fulfilling than it is right now. And we found it. So you find something like that, man, pouring resources into that, I think will uh, pay you back in dividends. So, I mean, as far as the level, and I, so was she, a, she, was she a manager type kind of position? Or was she more mid-level? Was she just starting out? I mean, you know. How- She's got five, six, seven years optical experience. She's been with me four, three or four years. Uh, she's four definitely years. one of my, <laughs> yeah, that's not super long for me, but she's right. definitely, you know, part of our universe for sure. And she is definitely one of our favorite 
um, our patient's favorite floor opticians. She's very outgoing, very playful personality um, and uh, very stylish. And so she was definitely, you know, we loved the idea of her training before just because she's a good optician. Right. Um, but I don't think her knowledge base might not be as much as some of the other. I've got people that have got 40 years of opt optical experience there. I've got a couple of them. And um, so you would think you'd want them to train, but that's not necessarily the right thing, right? Right. And uh, that list that, you know, we created for Vision Source on what to train on what day and, and the checklist and all that, man, that has worked, that, that just gives you this framework. If you get somebody that likes to train, really, really helps. I mean, one of the things also, Lori, I really admire about you is that of all the people I know, you probably are more on it than anybody I've ever met. And, and I'll, I'll speak to this to those that don't get a chance. Uh, Lori and, and Mick Kling, who she, who she talked about earlier, who's another dear friend of mine, actually, you know, our classmates from optometry school and have known each really? other. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we've been good friends since uh, 1989. I mean, really good friends too. And so it's, they are heading up a, a program for, uh, for Vision Source called the Business of Optometry. And it's all about really the fact that, and one of the things I, I really like about the fact is the word business is in the title of this instead of practice management. And that's that thing that everybody rolls their nose at when you say that out loud and any mixture of people. I, I really am glad we're trying to get rid of the word practice management. But the business of optometry, and it started off in, Lori, your thing was really about this the team and really pouring into the team and, and making sure they are, are viable and mixed thing was the finance and, you know, profit first and a lot of those kind of things. And then COVID hit. And um, so I guess the first question is whose decision was it to change the way BOO went as far as it turning into this online bulletin board type kind of thing. And the second question to follow that up is, how often are you not looking at that list? Because it seems like every single time there's a title of something, you have a response to it. I do feel very responsible for my list, sir. I feel like it's, <clears throat> it's like it's my little family that I need to make sure everybody's getting taken care of. Um, and, and then Amir Koshnev has asked me to do a synopsis for every week. Um, I used to do it every day, but now I'm doing it every week um, to post. And that actually helps me. I have to reread every single email again. Um, and so then I see some people who might have fallen through the cracks with a question or something. So I'm constantly doing that, too. So I enjoy that part. I mean, that, you know, I don't know why that's in my wheelhouse, but I enjoy the heck out of monitoring that listserv and answering questions and watching people help each other on that listserv. I think I think it's huge. So I will tell you the the what happened was, you know, we did the business of optometry and we actually had. Um, a section on the on the website, you know, on the inside, the website that Vision Source has, um, where all the people who'd gone through it were supposed to talk to each other and, you know, discuss everything. And we didn't get very, it was not, not very well used. I kept begging to <laughs> Donna Michalecki, will you let me just do a listserv? I already do a listserv with all my Texas ODs. Um, you know, I own the listserv and I, and I just run it. And um, that's always been really helpful. And she finally said, yeah, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> that was initially. And she saw how successful it was. And then COVID, like you said, it was going well. And I think it, people were thinking good things about it already. And then COVID hit. And the number of emails on that listserv per day were in the hundreds. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it my, was, my box was getting way over full and I was yes. having a hard time just keeping up with, I, I mean, I, I would, I would glance through the topics and I, I can't read that one. Yes. Can't read that one. Can't read that. Oh, that's something good. I think I'll watch that one, you know. And that's, and that's how it's supposed to work. Right. Yeah. Of course I read them all. The good thing is, and I said this in an, in an interview about um, why this kind of thing works for me is I read really, really fast. My mother read really fast. She read faster than I do, but I read weirdly fast. So I can get through stuff like that way faster than I think than most people can. So I think that's one reason I can kind of process all that stuff a lot more, a lot faster and a lot more easily. Just, and even like looking at government sites and figuring out stuff for the CARES Act and HHS and all that stuff. I can read through it so quickly. And I've read so much legislation over time that, it's, I don't think it's as hard for me because of that. That's incredible. Um, one of the reasons that you actually ended up, well, I mean, I was, I had you on my short list already, but uh, Kurt Steele, our, our good friend, 
uh, said of you, I steal more from Lori Sorensen than anyone I know. Uh, Lori, who do you steal from? Oh, uh, John Todd Cornett, Amarillo, Texas. He is one of the most brilliant business minds of anybody. Um, I probably steal from him the, by far the most. If you looked at my practice and saw his practice, you would see a lot. I've had somebody, walk, a vendor walk into my practice and go, this is the prettiest office I've almost I've ever, have you ever, do you know John Todd Cornett? <laughs> And it's like, uh, yeah, I, he actually helped me design the the building and the layout of not the building, but the layout of the office and um, the design inside the office was definitely my husband. Um, he's an artist and, an art, and an art, has an architecture degree and he's all the branding and the way the office looks is definitely him. And um, but yeah, John Todd would probably be my number one. Um, I steal a few things from Moe's and uh, Nasser and, and Mario Gutierrez. Um, i trying to think who else I steal from. Um, hmm. I don't know if JT is my, definitely my go-to. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, is there anything that he has, um, recommended that you do and you were a little bit resistant and put it into place and it worked out brilliantly? Um, well, I'm about to, <laughs> Um, he hired Gary Gerber for his, his myopia management program. Right. And I, I think we're getting ready to do the same thing. He got the lip of flow when it was a hundred thousand um, wow. dollars. Yeah. Yeah. And he made it work too. And he made money on it. Um, he actually has a whole second floor um, that is his dry eye clinic. And, um, and so I, I eventually did that. Um, we've, sh I will say we've traded some, there's a couple of things he stole that he's, uh, I finally convinced him to do, um, over time too, but he's just a good one to bounce stuff off of. I'll say, I'm thinking about this and he'll tell me every single reason why it won't work, yeah. but he's such a positive forward thinking, think out of the box person that, um, man, he always gets to the right spot. So, and, and together us talking, we always get to the right spot. Do you think the collaboration is what makes that work out better? Or is it just the fact that he's just so brilliant? I mean, I, I think it's both, but he, you know, I think we both have great practices without each other, but I think we both definitely have better practices because of how much we talk about things. Yeah. Right now you've got seven ODs in your practice. Is that correct? Counting me, yes. Counting you, okay. And um, one of the things I really wanted to talk about, I have said this more than one time on this podcast, this basically this time that I spend with everybody is like $10,000 of free consulting for me. <laughs> well, I really don't care if anybody gets anything out of this or not. It's all about me anyway. But your son joined your practice. And mm -hmm. this fall, my son started optometry school and oh, in four awesome. years. He's planning on getting out of optometry school. I, I'm, I'm not telling him, I didn't tell him he should go into optometry. I'm also not telling him he needs to come back to Tifton. If he does, that's great. I'll make a hole for him. If he doesn't want to, that's fine too. But how did that process work for you guys? How has that continued to work? What have been some of the challenges? How did, how do you make this happen? Does he call you mom in the practice or did he call you lawyer, Dr. Sorensen? I mean, how does that whole thing fit? You know, it's, it, just thinking about your son. Um, so my son was physical therapy was his major initially. And then he, he changed, he was working for an optometrist where he was going to school in undergrad. And, uh, and he's such a good tech. Oh my gosh, he's such a good tech. Um, and he, he trained all that doctor's techs because it was a college town. So there's always a lot of um, uh, change in, yeah, turnover, a lot of turnover in their staff. So, um, and then he, calls me and tells me um, I'm going to switch to optometry and my first reaction is why and he goes I thought you'd be excited and I go well let me tell you I said my profession is really really important to me and if you're getting into my profession because you think it's easier or that it's easier for you to get in school because of me I don't want you to be in my profession I want you to love the profession as much as I do and he's like god I thought you'd be happy I said I want you to be in it for the right reasons not for the wrong reasons yeah. so he was a little taken aback by my reaction so but he got what I meant right and then while he's in school I didn't know his dad is an optometrist too we're no longer married. And um, so I didn't know if he would want to join his practice or our practice. I was pretty sure I'd, it would be easier for me to 
to uh, pull him into our practice. By the time he graduated, he realized that he should come into, into our practice. But I got to tell you, when anybody asks me, what's it like to have your son with you in the practice? My first sentence is, it is so much fun to go to work and see my kid. And when I go to work on a day he's off, it's not as much fun. So I can't, and Eric and I have been super close, you know, always, I've always, we've always had a really, really, really good relationship and a very open relationship, which I think has made it easier for us. I think, um, I actually, I knew you were going to ask me something about this. I asked him that today. He said, he thinks one of the pros of having him in the practice and my husband too, that helps us with the practice too, is that he's not scared to say things to me. He thinks the other associate docs are more reticent to tell me that they disagree with something, especially when I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm, I've got a little bit of a strong personality. So <laughs> really? I have never noticed that about you. Yeah, I'm sure you haven't. And um, he, he thinks that they, they won't tell me when they disagree or they have, or, you know, they're not completely on board. He, and he can do that. Um, uh, he's not scared to do that with me. And um, we argued, we had a doctor's meeting yesterday and he took the opposite side of two things that I wanted to do. And he brought up all the other things. Um, and I think one, on one of the subjects that had a lot to do with what the other doctors were thinking and the other one um, was just his opinion. And I'd already convinced all the other doctors and I hadn't convinced him yet, but we still had that discussion in front of the doctors. Um, and I do think that's good. I mean, I think I, I always would hope that anybody would bring, cause I never get mad at people, but I do, I am pretty passionate, right. When I feel, feel strongly about something. Um, but he has no qualms about bringing it up and that's been super helpful. Um, he calls me mom sometimes, um, calls me Dr. Sorensen the rest of the time. Um, so I think when he's being cute and funny, he says, mom, Right. When he's trying to trying to be that person, um, but in front of almost anybody else or a patient, he says, "Dr. Sorensen." Uh, so, so how much how, you? This one thing I also I am really interested in because of what you just said, though. But how much does conflict play into the success of your practice? So that's a really good question. I think that I didn't probably have enough conflict in my prior years. And yeah, I was still successful. I think having that conflict now, I, so I used to not even have a manager. I didn't have a manager in our office until about five years ago. So we were three and a half million dollars before I actually had anybody managing in the office. Um, I was just, I had, you know, responsibilities laid out with, you know, 10, 15 different people, but I didn't have managers of departments and stuff. Once we got that big, um, I decided to do it. And boy, that's been fun. So for me right now, what my fun part is I'm coaching people to be managers and how to look at the business the right way and how to run the business and all that. And true with Eric, my son, and true with my two managers and, and my husband too. So, um, now we have a group of five people that make these decisions. So there's definitely, trust me, my husband has no trouble disagreeing with me on different things too. Um, and then, yeah, for sure. And especially if it has anything to do with aesthetics or branding or marketing, but he also has opinions about staffing and things like that. And um, so we definitely have more conflict and more discussion. And sometimes I, I mean, if all four of them think one thing and I think something else, we don't do it. I mean, we just don't do it. So the um, same thing with the doctors when we have a doctor's meeting and, and we will every now and then um, I think I bring up something that I'm not feeling that strongly about that. I know we'll have an argument with that I can lose. Um, <laughs> um, and we'll have that discussion and they're on the other side of what I really wanted to do. I'm trying to think if there was something that we did not too long ago where I brought that up, where we'd make a little bit more money if we did it this certain way, but it would be more of a pain to do. And they didn't really want to do it and said, okay, we're not going to do it then. So um, I definitely, I would say I rule by consensus, but it's also, it's a, almost a, maybe a little bit of politics about making sure that everybody's on the same page and right. that, no, and that type of thing. So more of the conflict and decide to, I mean, not to disagree and then commit is, I guess. The Absolutely. Yeah. That's huge. I, and, and anytime we're arguing about that, I said, once we decide, 
we're on board. And there's no question, my son, when he and I disagree, we are a hundred, we're not, we're a hundred percent going that direction together. So once you've made the decision, you've committed to it, how do you hold everybody? And I'm not, when I say you, I mean the team is in general, how do you hold everybody accountable for the decision that was made? What, what kind of things do you put into place to make sure you're supporting those behaviors that keep people going in the right direction? Isn't that the hardest thing? Yeah. Including oh, me, especially. I'm, and I'm the one that breaks it probably more often than anybody. Me too. Yeah. So you do. So just, let's just say like there was something where we had to start doing, um, uh, we were coding something a little bit differently, right. To make it easier for the person who was, was sending in the billing. And it was really up to the doctor to make sure that that code was put in there. Oh, I was the worst. Right. And so I had to tell the billing person, you have to tell me every time I forget to do it, or if it's the tech that catches it, you have to tell, cause I will never start doing it that way. If you don't make me do it. Cause I, I just won't, cause it's, it's not a habit yet. And, um, uh, and, and so one of the things when I implement something new, I, it depends on what it is, but I have done this one thing quite often where I will actually put it on my calendar or put a note on my computer about whatever that subject might be. And I try to remind the staff or whoever, whichever staff is, it, that needs to be reminded every single day by different methods until I see it starting to happen like it should. And then I might go to every two or three days and then I might go to every week. And um, so I, I always give this one example because it's, it's such a little nothing example, but for me, it's, it's kind of huge on, on, on our branding and, and just how our office looks. So our office is, is built with a completely open concept and <laughs> I realized one day the office looked visually cluttered and I realized it was because the chair, every chair that was open wasn't straight and wasn't pushed in, right? All the diagnostic area, the chairs were catawampus in the contact lens area that they were, optical area they were, the front desk they were, all that. And I realized that was causing a lot of visual clutter. Well, our office is about wowing our patient. It's supposed to kind of have a spa feel and visual clutter doesn't match that, right? So I tell the staff and I write an email and I tell them why we want to do this and try to do it this way, blah, 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 and how important it is. Well, of course it didn't happen, right? So then I wrote them another email and said, okay, um, you know, this is important to us. We're, we're going to do this and this is why. And if you don't think it's important, let me know. But Everybody got it, right? But it's still not a habit. So I started taking <laughs> screenshots from the security cameras when the cat, when the chair was catawampus and I would send it to that part, to everybody, well, that, that team. So it was an optical to the optical team said, gentle reminder, push in your chairs and put a smiley face or a heart or something, try to make it like, you know, and yeah. you think I'm like this perfect personality about details and you know, I'm not at all. But for me, that's a big picture thing. It, it doesn't, sure sound like a big picture thing but it really is part of our big picture you I walked I gotta tell you today I walked out of the office and I just looked around every chair in the contact lens area every chair in the diagnostic area every chair in the optical was perfectly neat pushed in straight it was it was like right at lunchtime and so everybody was done with patients and it was perfect and I haven't reminded them of that in months so um, it works, but you have, it's consistency, man. You got to find a way to be consistent. That's a huge win though. I mean, that is right? a huge win. I know that sounds like a little thing, but it's, it's but not. you can take that and move it to all kinds of different things, right? Right. So uh, quick lightning roundy kind of thing, um, because you and I are similar. We, we don't have any short way of telling anything, um, but tell me. <laughs> Two big wins you've had in the last year, and it it can be pre-COVID, post-COVID, doesn't really matter, and it doesn't even have to be professional. It can be personal too. What are your two big wins you've had in the past year? Two big wins um, that we're still alive and that we still have a practice. <laughs> okay, besides so, the, the obvious that yeah. So, but I say that because you know when this first happened, I mean, didn't you feel panicked right in the first week? I mean, first few weeks, I was I was terrified. I, I was. It, it's so Lori, this is kind of an unfair question for me. I, this business coaching program I'm going through with Michael Hyatt um, made my life just unbelievably calm. And it's kind of scary calm too, is what's kind of weird about it because I, I come back from Franklin. I'm in Franklin, Tennessee on March the 13th. 
and he announces that we are not going to be talking about productivity rhythms. We're going to be talking about leading in times of crisis. And we leave that meeting uh, after eight hours with a plan of how we're going to implement everything starting from Monday forward, realizing that it's all in wet cement. And by Tuesday, it's probably going to completely change. But yet here's where we're going to start. And here's the things that are not going to change. That's the first thing I had to tell my team. Here are the things that are going to change. And we've been through terrible things before and we got through them, you know, and this is going to be hard as all get out for the next, I don't know how long, but we can do this. Yeah. And part of this is going to cost us dearly. And I don't necessarily mean that in money. Some of it's going to cost us uh, things that we're not willing to give up. And some of that stuff ended up costing me a, an employee or so because it was more than they could give. And, and mm -hmm. I don't begrudge them of that. You know, that's just part of how it has to be. But, you know, knowing that I, I've had a remarkably calmness to myself for the last six months. And it, I think if this had happened any other time in my career, I would have been a dumpster fire. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It, it would have been a disaster for me. But now that I've gone through a lots of, I mean, we lost our, we completely lost our server in 2003. It had every bit, it had $60,000 of accounts receivable on it. Back then that was a lot of money, you know, and my computer guy was like, well, we got this one other thing we can do. We're going to send your hard drive off to this clean room and clean it, but it's going to be really expensive. I said, how much? He goes, oh, it's $500. <laughs> I said, like wow, $500. Okay. You know, where's that 60,000 of accounts receivable on there? So I think I can afford this, you know, and but, you know, having and, and losing everything. I mean, we, we, we didn't get it, you know, and then having other challenges and things that we've gone through. And, you know, it's just one of the, it's, there's always something. Yep. There's always something. I, I agree. And I, I, so, so my mindset at the beginning was I'm going to make this work. And so in my mind, I had decided that if I have to borrow a million dollars, to make because you know we have big practice so we have a lot of stuff i'm going to do it so that was my mindset and this is what i'm going to do i'm going to i know what's going to happen i'm going to have to borrow a million dollars maybe two million dollars but and i'll figure out how to pay it off over the next you know 20 years 30 years whatever it has to be and but i'm going to keep this business alive no matter what and i don't know if you know this either but I, this was right on the heels of having an extremely high offer from private equity to buy my practice that i had just turned down and so I'll tell you, there's two things here. One of the things is after, you know, I turned that down and all this happened and I was driving on my way to work one day and I, you know, I try to think of three things I'm grateful for and then write it down when I get to work before I start my day. And one of the things, and it was, this was this overpowering um, gratefulness I felt was the fact that I was still the owner of our practice, that I was the one that got to figure out the right things that we needed to do for our staff, for our patients, that it was up to me because I just, you would think just the opposite, right? But I was so grateful that I was in that position instead of being in a position where somebody else was making those decisions for our staff and our patients. So for me, that was actually, you know, that was a huge thing for me is to realize I'm actually grateful I get to be the person that does that. And then I think the other thing that I'm also really grateful for and that was a huge thing for me, honestly, was being able to help people through the Boo List service this year. So if I said something that was really big for me, that was huge for me. And um, it, it definitely fed, fed my soul this whole time was to be able to be a part of that. And um, so I, I think those two things are things that I think about a lot. And I'm really grateful to our government for giving us the PPP and the HHS yeah. money. I'm super and actually helping my staff with their unemployment. Um, all of those things made them whole more than whole during that yeah. time. And I will tell you that it's made me whole. And so far, <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen next. Um, so I'm trying not to be too positive, but, um, and I'm really grateful for that too. So um, those are, those are huge things Yeah, that I mean, have happened just this year. I, I think, you know, just the fact that we're cautiously, or cautiously positive about things, you know, and, and you, like you said earlier, I, there's one thing that kind of scares me a little bit is how much cash we've got all of a sudden, you know, and, and hiding that from myself is, is really important because I will 
please, I hope there are no vendors listening. Do not call me because I will spend all of that money on whatever you tell me to buy. So I'm, you know, I'm terrified that that's going to happen. Um, you know, but at the same time, it's going to have to be stuff that makes sense, obviously, or, you know, it does really bring revenue to the price for us to do it or, or just changes somebody's life by having it in the office. One of the, one of those things, but you know, it still comes down to the point of, I think that I'm just maybe unrealistically terrified that maybe I just got here because I'm lucky. Oh, yeah. And, and, and what happens when the luck runs out? Well, now what am I going to do? You know, and I think that's probably a lot of your mentality and a lot of almost everybody who has had any measure of success in their life. I think that's that in the back of their mind, what happens if, you know, and I think that's probably the bigger part there. I think that's true. I, I will say one thing that I thought about, and I, I, I wrote it on the listserv just this last week to think about is what happens to us next March, April, May, and June? Yeah. Because we didn't see, we saw almost no full exams during those four, at least two and a half of those four months, almost everybody. And those went, that's one reason why we're doing so well right now is all those four months of people are now crammed into this last part of the year, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not all of them, but you know, a big percentage, those people will not be due for their exam in March, April, May, or June next year. Right. So I think that one of the things, if, if we, I'm not usually one to look six, nine months down the road, I'm a, I'm a three month person. I always try to plan for the three months, but right now I am definitely planning for, well, I guess that's not too much more than three, three months down the road. Right. Um, It's not too much longer than that, but I'm trying to plan for that. And we're trying to put all of our medical visits um, if they were supposed to come in in January, February, we're trying to put them in April and May. Um, so that's something that to think about. Now, if you're a, a practice that does year out scheduling all the time, you can just move them, right? So that's easy. We don't do year out scheduling all the time. We only do it in slow periods of time. So we we have some on the books and we're moving them into like April and May right now that are, that are originally um, done for January and February, but it's not that many. So I think that's something for docs to think about. Um, I've talked to a lot of doctors who hadn't thought about that yet. And, and I think a lot of doctors are kind of flying on, uh, my practice is doing so good. I'm so great. My practice is so great. This is going to continue forever. And, um, you know, cause this is the worst crisis ever and we're doing so well. This is a weird time. Yeah. You know, we shouldn't base on what's going to happen next year on weird times. You need to base it on what you were doing the year before and the year before and, and how things are going to work. And we know that if you don't have annual exams that are due in three months in a row, you're probably going to have a little blip in your, in your, in your inflow of patients during that period of time. So that scares me the most is those three months next year. I know we can get through it. Um, if we don't get any more help from the government, that's going to be a little bit tough. Um, but that's something I think people ought to kind of plan ahead for. Well, yeah. I, and that's a great point for us to all keep in mind because, you know, one thing I, I think I probably shall do in uh, April, I'm just going to take the whole month off. I mean, I learned, you know, if I can take a month off in, in April, I can take a month again off in April, you know, or maybe not in April. I mean, maybe it's probably gonna be more like June, but, you know, having, having that ability to, to realize that we can, yeah, we got to prepare for the worst, but we can survive uh, with some of these challenges. And in fact, like I, we talked about earlier, a lot of these constraints have made us leaner and meaner and, and realizing that we don't have to have more to get more. And I, I think that's probably the big lesson for me this past year. I think that's true. It's amazing. Well, just personally, I guess we all are that way too. We're not spending the kind of money we did before. Right, right. That's right. Well, I told you I was going to keep you for about an hour ran over that so i knew it was going to happen oh, yeah. <laughs> we sure <laughs> I, did Lori. i really appreciate you being here with me today and spend some time i know our audience got a ton out of this i did i'm gonna have to watch go back and listen to some so i can make, make my notes because i didn't get a chance to while we're doing this but okay. thank you so much for doing this here. and you're welcome i enjoyed it
did a saw. Um, let me get those coats and stuff out of the way. The picture. Oh, it's not going to be on video. You can put it wherever you want. So. Oh, it won't be on video. Okay, good. No, I'm just okay. in my den because I can stand up here and it's and the sounds a little bit better. I actually sometimes okay. do this in my closet because of the acoustics. It's a little bit better. Yes. So. So my my youngest son, who's the video guy, computer science major, um, he before he got his apartment, that's what he did. He recorded in his video in his uh, closet every day. So, because he does a lot of uh, voice acting and a lot of, he had his own, uh, uh, what do you call it? YouTube station where he yeah. did this thing and he did it all in his closet. That's, I mean, I never thought about that. And I'm trying to remember who said it the first time I thought that is brilliant. I can't believe I have it. You know, the only problem with my closet is it's so tiny. We live in a really old, tiny house oh. and, you know, it's hard to maneuver everything I got to get. I'm going to just buy me a like a rolling desk that I can just throw in there when I need to, I think is my best plan. I actually have a place to sit in my closet. That would actually, I didn't even think, and I have a pretty good sized closet. We took over the closet that was there and you know, those little bitty tiny walk-in showers that all the old houses had yep. that is in my closet now. So that shower, we took out that shower and that whole part was, is in my closet. So that added to the closet that was already there. And that's where I sit is where the shower used to be. Cause there's some plumbing underneath there. Right. So, yeah. So it's, I, I hadn't even thought about that. That would actually yeah, work pretty well. Hmm. Now, if I could so, just get the background to look okay in my closet, <laughs> well, I could actually record in there. That's actually not a bad idea. Then the dog wait, barking wouldn't come in. I'll tell you one hmm. thing you could do is just get some pipe and drape and throw it up when you needed it and take it down when you didn't. It doesn't have to be really fancy. Oh, good idea. Ooh. That would work great. And it would also even help with sound more too. Yeah. That's a or, really good. Um, I've, I've even seen uh, where people sort of did a, you know, like a PVC pipe kind of thing. And they just mounted some flooring to that. And they would throw that up when they needed to. And they would take it down when they didn't need it. And my, like I said, my son does something like he has does something where he does a green screen so that he can do all that kind of stuff. So he has something like that too. He bought something. Actually, I think I bought it for him for Christmas last year. Huh? That's actually a really good idea. I mean, I'm using a mic now, which helps quite a bit. I can tell when it's working and when it's not working when I look at my videos. Because yep. sometimes I go, oh, I didn't check to see if the mic was working. I checked a minute ago, so I think it's picking up the um, mic instead of, because my house is echoey. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I, I, in fact, the reason I actually got a mic in the first place was Chris Wolf taught me into, he said, here's what you need. Here's your list of stuff to get. And when I got those things, it made things a lot better. My first couple are just really tinny sounding and I was using mm -hmm. like earbuds and ugh, it was awful. Um, you know, one day I'll grow up. Does my like sound Chris. seem okay? Oh, it sounds fantastic. Yeah. Hopefully. My okay. Good. Too. Oh yeah. yeah. Yours actually does. And your picture is really clear too. That's good. Um, using a surface tablet uh for my oh. picture wow and, yeah i mean i was really surprised at how well the the graphics work on it's this crisp thing. it's really yeah. good i actually kind of like the softness of my laptop <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe i need to soften mine let me get some yeah. things going here hang on a second 